Some of you will know uh, we all in our household had COVID six months or so ago around the start of August and uh, how I knew I had it at the time was I, I, I wasn't feeling great. It was my birthday actually and uh, and I put a bit of chewing gum in my mouth and I couldn't taste a single thing and so my taste and my smell completely disappeared which I know happened to some of you uh, over the last wee while maybe when you had COVID as well um, and then it started to come back after two three weeks and then I got the flu and since then my taste and smell have been completely messed up everything I eat tastes pretty much the same which is awful for my beautiful wife because she will make me beautiful food and she'll go, well, do you enjoy it? And, and I kind of just have to go, it just, yeah, but it tastes like everything else that I'm eating at the minute, you know. Um, and it's not the blandness of the dish. I mean, the dish is ex- exquisite. It is, it is just that everything tastes the same. Things that I used to love, like caramel squares. Anybody like caramel squares here? It's a, been a favourite of mine since I was, like... I, I don't even, I mean, I still eat them just for the sugar rush and just because of the texture of them, but I don't get the tea. I mean, caramel squares, you know, it's chocolate, the, the shortbread and the caramel. It's like, when you get all three right, that's a winner. There's normally one that's not quite right. When you get all three right, I'm a bit of an expert in caramel squares, I've got to be honest. Uh, curries, I love curries. Curries really don't taste good to me anymore. And I've got to the stage where I've just, for a while it was strange, not being able to taste things. It's kind of a metallic, yucky taste. I've now, after six months, just kind of got used to it. I've learned to live with it. I've actually started to accommodate it because some foods taste slightly better than others. And so I've started to just accept that food doesn't taste great and that's just the way it is. As you can see, it hasn't stopped me eating. Um, but, uh, but I've just kind of got... And if I got my taste back, it would actually now be kind of strange because I've learned to accommodate it. And... We're going to be looking at somebody today who had something that was defective in their life, something that wasn't working properly in their life, but they had learned to accommodate it. But Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, actually, I know that you're willing to live like that, but I've got something more for you. I've got something better for you. And I want to restore to you what you have lost. And I believe that as I preach this morning, as we pray at the end, that God is going to restore some things to you. Things that the enemy has stolen, things that you have lost even physically, I believe that the Lord is going to bring restoration. Today's message is called Stand and Stretch. Don't worry, I'm not asking you to do that, but it's called Stand and Stretch. Let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. The ESV says a withered hand. So we read about this man with a shriveled, withered hand. Have you seen anything withered and shriveled? It looks dried up. It looks twisted. You know, the actual word for shriveled there was used, we could use it for, have you ever left a, a piece of fruit somewhere for six months? Like an orange or an apple or a banana and you've come back and it's all shriveled up and all the, all the juices out of it and it's all yucky. And that's kind of the idea here. This man's hand was shriveled up. It was distorted. It was deformed. It was dried up. It wasn't working as it should. Luke, when he tells this story in his gospel, he's a doctor so he notices the details. And he says it was the man's right hand 
In that culture, the right hand primarily meant two things. It was the hand of power and it was the hand of blessing. The hand of power and the hand of blessing. That's why it says Jesus is at the Father's right hand. He rules in power and he brings blessing into our lives. When they were blessing their sons in the Old Testament, they used their right hand. In fact, everything in that culture that was good involved your right hand. Your left hand was used for... Let's just say they didn't have the same hygienic stuff that we had then. So when you had to go to the bathroom, you used your left hand. Everything else, you used your right hand. And it tells us that this man's right hand was shriveled. In other words, the place of blessing, the place of power, the place of authority, the place of work in his life was shriveled up. It wasn't working as it should. I've got a friend who has got a shriveled right hand. He's a very successful businessman. He's in his 50s, very successful in his field. And his mother told me a number of years ago, I asked her what happened and she said when he was born, the doctor just got impatient. He wasn't coming out easily and the doctor just yanked him out and it twisted his hand. And it's, She said today there would be a medical malpractice suit. This doctor was well known for doing things like that. But this man, through no fault of his own, has got a shriveled right hand. It's twisted, it's pointed inwards, just like this. And The thing is, he's highly successful in business, but when you go into a business meeting, what's the first thing people do? They reach out their right hand. And he's got this huge success in his life, but every time someone reaches out their hand, he's got this reminder that something's not the way it should be. And you know, the hand is such a small part of the body. I mean, overall, with a percentage part of your body, your hand is, what, 2 3% maximum? And yet it has such a huge impact on our lives, and on this man's life and the story, and on my friend's life. And there are going to be some things that are small in our lives that aren't working, but they have a disproportionate impact. Every other aspect of our life can be going great, but if you have one area that's not working, it can start to affect every other area. If there's one place in your life that's shriveled, that's distorted, that's withered, it can affect every other area. We don't know the man's name. All we know is his dysfunction. All we know is his disability. You know, he could have been called the man with one good hand. He could have been called the man with two strong legs. He could have been called the man with a great brain. But he became defined according to his deformity, according to his dysfunction. And isn't that what we do sometimes? We pick the part of our lives that's not working and we define ourselves by that. 98% of our life could be going great, but we start to define ourselves by the 2% that's not. I picked up, our, our little boy was... Elijah was playing rugby yesterday morning and he played brilliant. It was the best I had ever seen him play. I mean, he really was. It was the best I'd ever seen him. And he got into the car and I said, that was brilliant. He was beaming. And then after about two minutes, he started saying, but there was that one mistake I made. I was meant to pass it and I didn't pass it. And he started getting caught up in this one move in the game in an hour and a half that he made a mistake. 
And I said, stop talking about that. I watched you and you were brilliant. But how often do we do that? We are so quick to notice the things in our hearts and our lives that aren't working properly. And we label ourselves according to them. I don't know about you, but I am so much more aware of my weaknesses and my strengths. I'm aware of my deficiencies. I'm aware of the places that I haven't got it all together yet. I'm aware that there's places in my life where I need Jesus to do a deep work. And I can allow those places that aren't right to define me, or I can allow what Christ has already done in my life to define me. I can label myself according to my deficiency and my defectiveness and my deformity, or I can label myself according to Christ's supremacy and sufficiency. And this man was known as the man with the withered hand. But he was so much more than that. And I want to say to you, you're so much more than the label somebody has put on you. You're so much more than the person who's got depression. You're so much more than the person who's sick. You're so much more than the person who's divorced. You're so much more than the person who struggles with sexuality. You're so much more than the person who didn't do well at school. You're so much more than the person who, whose parents told them that you would never amount to much. You're so much more than the abuse you suffered in the past. You're so much more than the addiction you're struggling with right now. You're so much more because your deficiency is covered with Christ's supremacy. What you're lacking is more than made up with what he provides. You will never have more lack than the grace of Jesus is able to cover. And maybe there's parts of your life that have got withered and shriveled over the last few while. Maybe over the last two years. Maybe your faith has got withered and shriveled. Maybe your passion for Christ. Maybe your zeal for the Lord. Maybe your desire to serve has got withered and shriveled. Maybe there's friendships and relationships. Maybe your marriage. Maybe there's things that just are not working the way they should be working. You know, what I've discovered is that everybody you know is struggling with something you cannot see. I don't care how good it looks on the outside and how well they look and how curated their Instagram profile is. Everyone you know is fighting a battle that you cannot see because we hide our withered hands. Somebody comes along and we go, hi there, and we hold out our good hand and we keep our broken, shriveled, withered hand down to the side and Jesus comes along where this man is with the withered hand and look at verse 2 it says some of them that's the religious leaders were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath we're only in Mark chapter 3 here the early chapters of the gospel, but there's already this growing contention and tension and hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it would never go away. Ultimately, they would hang him on a cross. And it's particularly around the Sabbath. They have this thing about the Sabbath, about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And Jesus keeps breaking the rules. Jesus keeps doing things that he's not meant to do. And they don't like it one bit. But Jesus doesn't shrink back. Jesus doesn't avoid conflict. 
Because Jesus is looking at it and he's saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I am going to confront the injustice and the unrighteousness and the religion and the regulations and the rules that you're piling upon people. You see, we think of Jesus as just, and I've talked about this over the last few weeks, we think of Jesus as kind of this floaty, floated through the air with a ready bright glow, just saying nice things to people. You know, he was the Lamb of God, but he was the Lion of Judah. He was the humble shepherd, but he was the conquering king. And Jesus never backed off from a fight. He didn't go looking for a fight, but when he saw injustice, he spoke out against us, against it. And he walks into this place, and it says they were looking for a reason to accuse him. He walks into this environment, which is like the church of that day, and instead of finding life and hope and positivity and healing, he finds negativity and he confronts it. He confronts it. A place that was supposed to bring worship and life had turned into a place of criticism and an environment of negativity. And it says this, they watched him because they wanted to find fault in him. It's amazing that when you want to find fault in something or someone, you will always be able to find fault in something or someone. You will always find what you're looking for. I could stand up here and I could tell you, I'm going to be careful. I could tell you five of my wife's faults, okay? I mean, there's not five. I could, I could make up five, okay? I would, I, I would have to make up five things that irritate me. I could, I could stand up here and any husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, if they were really brave today, by the way, guys, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. Just gentle reminder, that was for free. I have got Becky a, a bag and a belt. The vacuum cleaner is going to be working much better from now on. Boom, boom. But, but we can, I could tell you five of her faults. But to do that, I would be ignoring the thousand strengths she has. But if I chose to focus on her faults, I could find them. Because you will always find what you're looking for. In your marriage, you will find what you're looking for. If you want to find fault in a church, you'll find it. If you want to find fault in your job, you'll find it. If you want to find fault in a sermon, believe me, you'll find it. If you want to find fault in a relationship or in a person, you will find it. You will find what you're looking for. And they were looking to find fault with Jesus. And even in our own lives, we'll find evidence to back up the verdict that we've already come to. This is something that we do with Elijah again. We're probably never stricter with him than when he speaks negative words over his life. When he starts to say things like, nothing ever good, or this always happens to me, we shut it down immediately. We're pretty savage at that point. Like he gets a lot of grace in a lot of areas. But we actually, yesterday he did it and we stopped him and we say, speak the opposite over your life. Because the words we speak will start looking for evidence to prove them. If no, you say nobody will ever love me, you will find evidence to prove nobody will ever love you. Have you ever met anyone who says, I'm, I'm so clumsy? And then very quickly they're dropping things. Because they've suddenly found evidence to prove that they're clumsy. I'll never amount to much in life, and maybe they don't, because they're always looking for evidence. 
We will always find what we're looking for. But what if we were looking for the good? What if we were looking for the positive? What if we were looking for something to praise people about instead of tear them down? These people are looking to find fault with Jesus. And look at what we read in verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful in the Sabbath to do good? Or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. But they remained silent. I was thinking this week, that's a statement in itself. Um, I was thinking this week about if we had been around 2,000 years ago, would we have liked Jesus? For those watching online who couldn't hear that, there was a bit of disco music on a phone going on there. And here's they're like, why did he just stop and do this? Bring it back. Would you have liked Jesus? And I, I mean, I know your response is, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian. But would you have liked Jesus? He was a troublemaker. He didn't toe the religious line. He didn't follow the rules. He was a bit of a maverick. He was a rebel at times. He was scandalous at times. The people who had power and prestige and position, he constantly went against them. And I don't know about you, but when I see people like that sometimes, I just feel like saying, tone it down. Stop trying, like, do you always have to create a fuss? Like, I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation. I don't ever go looking for confrontation. And neither did Jesus. But when there was something that was unjust, when there was something that dishonored God, he had to confront it. But I think a lot of us would struggle with that. And we see him doing it here. They're waiting, they're looking for something to accuse Jesus. And Jesus could shy off. If I had been Peter or one of the disciples, I'd have said, Jesus, look, he's had the the withered hand for quite a while. One more day is not going to make much difference. Today's the Sabbath. You could heal him tomorrow. Or I'd have said to him, Psst, withered withered William, Jesus, I'll meet you outside and he'll, he'll sort that out. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says to the man, Stand up in front of everyone. Stand up in front of everyone. The man, this was probably the last thing he wanted to do. He wanted to hide. He wanted to hide. And Jesus says, stand up. And I believe that for some of you right now, the Lord's word to you is this, stand up. It's time to stand up. It's time to stop hiding. It's time to stop shrinking down. It's time to come out of the place of containment and confinement because our culture loves to keep us small and hidden and the last two years has confined us and restricted us and I believe the word of the Lord to some of us is right now is it's time to stand up. And that will mean something different for each of us. It may mean it's time to stand up against an abusive situation. It may mean it's time to speak up against something that's unjust or not right. It may mean it's time to stand up and get involved in the world again and get involved in life again and get involved in serving again and get involved in your community again because you've been hiding for a while. 
But I believe for some of us, the word of the Lord today is to come out of hiding. It is time to stand up. It's time to come out of hiding. And it's time to speak up and step forward for some of us. And Jesus says to the man, stand up. Stand up. Why? This is an unusual miracle. It's the only miracle I can find in the Gospels. The only healing that is initiated by Jesus and not the person. It's the only miracle that somebody didn't come to Jesus first, but that Jesus initiated it without them even asking or desiring it. The woman with the issue of blood, if only I can touch his cloak. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Mary and Martha, will you go and raise Lazarus from the dead? The lepers, will Jesus have mercy? Every other miracle, every other healing was initiated by the person who received the healing. This guy didn't even ask for it. And yet Jesus is going to give him a miracle. Why? Because Jesus is using him to make a point here. Jesus is using him in front of this crowd of people where their hearts have become withered, where their hearts have become shriveled, just like this man's hand. Jesus is using him to make a point. The temple, the synagogue, the Jewish faith, it was all meant to be good. The Sabbath itself was meant to be good. Jesus himself has just said a few verses earlier, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But they've taken a gift from God and they've made it a prison. And Jesus is wanting to confront it because the only thing worse than a withered hand is a withered heart. And Jesus wants to confront how shriveled and how distorted and how inward looking the faith is. Has become. And so he tells the man to stand up. He tells him to stand up in front of everyone. And look at what happens. Verse 5. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed. Those words literally mean with wrath and great grief. Jesus looks at the religious leaders with wrath. And great grief. He's angry and his heart is broken. At their stubborn hearts. Their hard hearts. Their withered, shriveled hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. When I was younger... I did martial arts, I did karate and kung fu for years and I stretched a lot. In fact, there's a couple of photos of me when I was probably 13, 14. That is me and that is not photoshopped, that is real. I had a very high-pitched voice in my teenage years. Do you know how I was able to do that? I stretched all the time. Now, I tried this yesterday. Here's, the, here's me trying it yesterday. Okay, take that down. That's not pleasant. I'm not able to stretch anymore because I stopped stretching. And as I stopped stretching, I lost my flexibility. And Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. 
stretch out your hand. He's told him to stand, and now he's telling him to stretch. That part of you that you're hiding, that part of you that's deformed, that part of you that's not working properly, I want you to expose it. He didn't say which hand. If I'd have been the man, I'd have been like, okay, and stretch out my left hand. But what Jesus is telling him is to stretch out that place that you're keeping hidden. Stretch out that place where you feel broken. Stretch out that place where you feel weak. Stop hiding that thing that you're embarrassed about. Stretch out your hand. And it says this, verse 5 and 6, he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. Most other miracles like this would have said it was healed. But here it says it's restored. The word restored is used 120 times in the Bible. And to restore means to bring back to the way it should be. We talk about restoring old houses, restoring old cars, restoring old pieces of furniture. It's to bring it back to its original former state into a good condition. And the Bible tells us that our God is a God of restoration. The church at many times has made him a God of rules and regulations and rituals, but our God is a God of restoration. Our God is a God who restores us and restores things in our lives to the way they should be, to the way they were meant to be. But the thing is this, when we talk about restoring, we usually talk about going back When we're trying to restore something, we want to go back to how it was and to make it how it was back then. But notice what Jesus says. If you want restoration, you have to stretch forward. He tells the man to stretch out your hand, not stretch back your hand. And you know, sometimes there is benefit in looking over our history and looking over the things that have happened to us in the past and dealing with someone. But can I tell you, your restoration is not found in looking backwards, it's found in reaching forwards. All of the good stuff God has for you is ahead of you. And as you go over all of the hurts, all of the pains, all of the things done against you, you will never find restoration. But as, as, as Paul said, putting those things behind me, I reach forward to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. He stretches forward, and as he stretches forward, his hand is completely restored. But he had to stretch first. You see, here's what I would have preferred. His hand was restored, and then Jesus said, stretch out your hand. But when he stretched it out, it was still crooked. It was still deformed. It was still not the way it should be. But as he stretched it out, as he did the thing, that he didn't think he could do, his hand was restored. But he had to be obedient to what Jesus was asking him to do. You see, very often Jesus will ask us to do something that we don't think we can do. Something we have convinced ourselves we're not able to do. 
And we always have a choice in that moment. Do I go by what I feel or do I go by what he has said? And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the man could have went, I can't. I'm, I'm away home. Stop embarrassing me. But he did what Jesus told him. And he got his blessing back. And he got the power back. And his hand was completely restored. And it happened in steps because the first thing, remember, that Jesus told him to do was what? Stand up. And then it was stretch out. And if he hadn't done the first thing, he wouldn't have got the second thing. And here's what I've discovered with God. Sometimes he will ask you to do something small before he asks you to do something big. And if you don't obey him in the small, you won't see the miracle in the big. See, in the kingdom of God, there's no elevators and there's no escalators. There's just stairs. There's just steps. And God will sometimes take us through steps of obedience. And if you won't obey him in the first step, don't expect to get the next one. And there's some of you, there's steps that God is asking you to take. And they may seem insignificant, but as you obey him in that first step, a whole other step will open up and you will see incredible things happen. But it starts with the first bit of obedience and then a constant and continual obedience. So he asks the man to do something he doesn't think he can do, something he doesn't want to do, but as he obeys by faith, his hand is restored. And I believe the Lord would say to you as well as stand up at the minute, he would say it's time to stretch again. There's some of us that I really believe the Lord would say right now, it's time to stretch again. I know that your job pays the bills and I know it's secure, but you absolutely hate it and it's time to stretch again. I know that you're comfortable in that dating relationship and it's nice and safe, but deep down you know that it's not right for you and it's time to stretch again. I know that you're called to serve somewhere but you don't feel adequate, I want you to stretch again. I know that you feel like your marriage is not what it should be, but you've just kind of got into this rut and settled for how it is, I want you to stretch again. I know that you give a little bit, but you know that you're not giving generously. I want you to stretch again. Miracles never happen in your comfort zone. Miracles only ever happen in the stretch. If you want to see the work of God in your life supernaturally, powerfully, it will happen in the stretch, not in your comfort zone. And I believe for some of us, God is saying it's time to stretch. It's time to reach further. It's time to go further because you've got comfortable where you are. And if you will stretch, you will see the supernatural. You will see me work in your life in a way that you've never seen before. But if you stay in this little comfortable area where you are, that's all you will see. Sometimes for God to do something big, we just need to do something small. We just need to stretch. And as I finish, the man wasn't expecting a miracle that day. He was going to church. He was going to the synagogue just to go through the ritual, to go through the routine like he probably did every other day. 
He wasn't expecting an encounter with Jesus, and yet that's what he got. And maybe you're here this morning in person. Maybe you're watching online, and you're just going through the motions, and you're just doing what you do, and you're not expecting much. But maybe this morning, as we pray in a moment or two, you're going to encounter Jesus. Maybe you're going to find restoration. Maybe you're going to find healing. Maybe you're going to find salvation this morning. He wasn't expecting much, but Jesus met him beyond his expectations. But the thing he had to do was this. He had to reveal what he was concealing. He had to show what he was hiding. He had to be willing to expose his vulnerability, and we don't like doing that. We would rather keep it covered up. And yet Jesus can't heal what we won't reveal. And we don't have to reveal it to everyone, but we do need to reveal it to him. You know, in 16 years of ministry, I have heard everything. Like, at at this stage, I am fairly unshockable. Now, I'm sure there's one or two of you could probably still shock me. But I am pretty unshockable at this stage. There's so little that I haven't heard. And sometimes people will come and they will confess stuff to me. Things that they have done that they're deeply ashamed of. Areas of brokenness in their lives. Places where things are not working as they should. And when I see that vulnerability, you know what it makes me do? It makes me love them more. It makes me actually think higher of them. But when they hide it, when I know they're hiding stuff, I find it very hard to to connect with people. And I believe that Jesus is saying, "Will will you be willing to be vulnerable? Will you be willing to reveal what you're keeping concealed? Because I can't heal what you're concealing. But if you're willing to bring it before me, if you're willing to show me your crooked hand, if you're willing to stretch it out, I will bring healing. And here's what I've also found, that is, as you're willing to be vulnerable, other people will be. As you're willing to show your shriveled hand, somebody else will also say, I've got a shriveled hand as well. I've got places of brokenness. But as I finish, what do you need restored? In your life right now, what do you need restored? What do you need brought back to the way it should be? What isn't working in your life? Because God wants to restore things today. Some of you, it actually even might be a physical thing. It might be something important, like a ring or a piece of jewelry that you lost and you want it back. It might belong to your mother. We're going to pray in a minute for restoration. For some of you, it's your marriage needs restored or relationship needs restored. For some of you, your joy needs restored. In Psalm 51, David said this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Some of us have lost our joy. Maybe our soul needs restored. David said, you restore my soul. Maybe our finances need restored. The book of Job says that he gave him double, that he blessed him and double. And in other places it talks about restoring her fortune. Maybe your mind needs restored. It actually talks about in the Bible restoring our mind. What part of your life is not working as it should be? Because we serve a God who restores. I was with somebody on Friday, a young guy who's in ministry and he was sharing with me about how he had been battling 
burnout and, and depression. And he talked about just how low he had got in the last season or so. The last six months, nine months a year. And he began just to talk about how low and how dark and how empty things were. And once he had told me that, I, I began to tell him about where I was at the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016. Six, five, six years ago. The place of emptiness I found myself. Sitting in a doctor's waiting room at five o'clock with tears streaming down my cheeks wondering what am I doing here? How did it ever end up like this? Feeling empty. Feeling like I was in a pit that I would never get out of. Feeling like God was done with me and I would never be in ministry again. That God couldn't use me again. But he kept asking questions and I kept telling him more of my story. And I told him about how God began to restore me. And I told him about the goodness of God and the provision of God and the faithfulness of God. And I look at my life five, six years on from that. And can I say these last five, six years have been the most joyful years of our life. They've been the best years of our marriage. They've been the, we've experienced the blessing of God in ways beyond we would never have imagined. But if you had seen me six years ago, you would have thought, I'm not sure he's going to make it. And I was able to say to this guy, I actually said to him, look, I'm sorry if I've talked too much. And he went, no. He actually said, Craig, thank you. He said, you've given me hope that if God could restore you, he can also restore me. And I want to say to you today, our God is a God of restoration and he wants to restore you. And so we're going to pray now. And we're going to pray for God to restore, fix, bring back to what it should be. Anything in your life that's not working as it should. And I believe that today and in the days ahead, you're going to see restoration.